This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 14, The Tent Girl. What he did for 10 years was strange and bizarre. I find it, as someone who can become obsessive about things, I mean, I feel like it came from such an honest place. Yeah, I don't really think of it as being obsessed. I think of it as him being determined. Yeah. Determined is really the word for it. That's Rosemary Westbrook. She and I were talking about Todd Matthews. You'll hear from him in a minute. But what you should know as we get started on this week's episode is that both Rosemary and Todd would find each other in a highly unusual way. As a result of Todd's, some would say determination, others, including Todd, would say obsession. What's so cool about your story is your passion, which, you know, people always say, like, do what you love and the fruits will come, right? And I'm sure, as you described your wife, like, are you really going to do the the story and keep, I mean, you were, I mean, I'm sure you'll admit you were obsessed. Yeah, I um, was. Bottom line, because of Todd and Rosemary's need to know from two completely different viewpoints, They'd be thrust together in an amazing and groundbreaking way. Two lost pieces of a puzzle finally fitting together. They would solve a nearly 30-year mystery that had become the stuff of urban legend across Kentucky. Who was the unidentified young homicide victim known only as the Tent Girl? The Tent Girl was found outside of Georgetown, Kentucky, Today, Georgetown is the sixth largest city in the state. On May 17, 1968, on a lonely rural stretch of Route 25, just outside of Georgetown, a man named Wilbur Riddle was waiting to meet someone on the side of the highway. According to Todd Matthews, who, by the way, wouldn't be born for three more years, says that Wilbur was a curious man and that he was tooling around on the side of the country road when he notices something in the distance. Wilbur has to climb over the guardrail, and as he walks closer to the object, it appears to be a large canvas bag of some sort. He's wondering what in the world it is. But as he approaches the bag, his nose begins to tell him it's not good. He was a well driller, so back in the day, there's no cell phones, so you would meet somebody, work on a job. You'd actually meet them, have a discussion, then go to the job site, which is exactly what they were doing. And while he was waiting on somebody, he was looking at the glass insulators, ironically, the telephone wires, which the internet ultimately went across. He was picking them up. They were already antique, even back in the 60s. They were from much earlier. And um, he was picking them up, and he found the tent girl wrapped in the canvas tent wrapper that gave her her name. It was a tent wrapper. The tent wrapper that Todd is referring to is much bigger and more specialized than the sleeve that you shove a two-person tent into. It's not your ordinary tent bag. Wilbur can't help but take in the sight of the young woman in the bag. 
And like many people who have found bodies and say that it's something forever seared into their brains, the image of that young woman in that tent bag would invade his dreams. And it was just something that he never got over. Rosemary has been to the place where the tent girl was found by Wilbur. We'll get to why she was there and the role that she will play in solving this case later. On the end of a, do- a guardrail and park, and we had to walk maybe, it was quite a ways it seemed like. We had to jump over the guardrail and go down this hill, and there was a very large rock that had a void underneath it, and that's where he had stuffed her up underneath this rock and left her there, left her there. When he put her there, she may have been knocked out, but the broke fingernails inside of the tarpaulin that she was in, the scratch marks on the inside of the tarpaulin says otherwise. I can't express to you how Wilbur felt that day. As a father of daughters, seeing a young woman dumped on the side of the road so carelessly and being the one to find her in that state, it would just come to haunt him for years. And this is an important detail in the case. Police were called out to the scene, and it was believed that the body found inside of the tent wrapper was most likely a teenager because of her small stature. But the police investigation didn't get very far, and despite efforts to publicize her description and check reports of missing women, the case of the tent girl went cold. And the tent girl's remains were buried in a Georgetown cemetery in 1971. Fast forward to 1987. Todd Matthews grew up in Tennessee, and when he was just 17 years old, his life would change in a way that he could never have imagined. Uh, of course, it was 1987, October of 1987, and, and uh, there was three of them, three sisters. They were new girls at the school, and it's a small school, so you know somebody new is noticed right away. And they were lined up like minions, walking through from the oldest to the youngest, walking through the cafeteria. Well, I kind of liked the one in the middle, the one that I saw. She was closer to my age, and uh, I said to my friend sitting beside of me, that's a girl I'm going to marry. And it sounded like somebody else was talking. When I said that, I thought, why did I say that? You know, And it wasn't a... It wasn't one of those things where she was all made up with hair and makeup and, you know, like the, the head cheerleader. She was beautiful, but in a very uh, natural way. But the thing of it was, she looked familiar to me. I felt like I already knew her for some reason. So at that moment, at age 17, it was like a, a transition. It was like a change from a child to an adult. Um, and I remember that. There's like periods in your life, things that you remember when there were significant changes, like the day you marry the birth of your child, the death of your grandparent. You know, there's things that happen and that's the moment in my life where I realized I'm not just a kid anymore. So Todd and Lori were in study hall and it was Halloween. And instead of doing their homework, Lori begins to share an urban legend from her home state, Kentucky. Remember, she was new to the school in Tennessee, which was about 160 miles away from where she grew up study hall together, ironically, and she came over and stood beside of me. And since it was Halloween, she started telling me about the tent girl story. The young teenager who had been found in a tent bag murdered, her fingernails shredded, her fingertips bloody from trying to get out from that tent bag. You can just hear Lori telling this story. The details are so horrific. I felt like it was a story that I'd heard before. I don't know where or how. There was no internet, and I didn't really spend a lot of time in that part of Kentucky. And I was 17, so I didn't have a lot of time to have lived there, but it just seemed so familiar to me. Lori knew these details well, because it was her father 
Wilbur Riddle. He was the man who found the tent girl so many years ago. Some of us get invested in true crime cases because we have a connection to the case or the details of the investigation just pull us in because they're so salacious or it's the ultimate whodunit. But for Todd, finding out all the details that he could about the tent girl became an itch that he just had to scratch. I saw the newspaper articles, the master detective article that described it, and then it was drive. It's like drive up there, get the newspaper articles, drive up there, see her grave at the cemetery. You know, I'd done that very early. And the plight of the tent girl couldn't have gotten any more real for Todd than when he stood at her gravesite. At 17 years old, he'd driven the 160 miles away from his home in Tennessee to Georgetown, Kentucky. Remember, without any leads in the tent girl's case, her remains were buried in 1971 in a Georgetown cemetery in Kentucky under an apple tree. A local company had donated the headstone, and it was inscribed with the words, Tent Girl. Underneath the tent girl were details about her case, that she was found on May 17, 1968, on U.S. Highway 25 North, that she died about April 26 through May 3, 1968, and that her age was about 16 to 19 years, that she was 5 foot 1, 110 to 115 pounds, with reddish-brown hair, and that she was unidentified. On the other side of the tombstone, there was an engraving of a police sketch that had been made to depict how they believe she might have looked in life based on a reconstruction of her face using her bone structure. And there was one very distinctive feature about the tent girl she had a distinctive split between her two front teeth. Going to the cemetery and seeing the gravesite of the tent girl triggered something deep inside of Todd. At 17, he was a very sensitive young man, and he had lost two siblings at a young age, and he just couldn't let tent girl be there in that cemetery alone. In a way, we were kind of connected because that it was my, my by then father-in-law that had found her. So I felt like she was part of the family package for us. That was uh, just the one that had no name. Todd would go on to marry Lori, and they lived in Tennessee in a small home nestled in the Smoky Mountains. Married Lori in 1988 and began my mission at that point of trying to identify the tent girl and bring her back to her family. I can at least adopt her. I could at least visit her grave. There weren't a lot of tools for Todd to use to try to figure out who the tent girl was. Remember, Lori's dad, Wilbur, had collected all the newspaper clippings from back in the day about her case. This was before the internet, and that's what people did. Todd also went to the library, and he visited the tent girl's grave. That was fuel for him. He wanted to know who she was. He wanted to know who her family was. And I'd had two siblings that had passed away as infants, so it wasn't entirely unfamiliar for me to see names on a tombstone that were your loved ones. So Tent Girl wasn't like a creepy thing. It was, I was very familiar with it. And I felt like she didn't have a name on her tombstone like my brother and sister did. I knew them as an inscription on the headstone. So I felt like she could be no worse off than they are, at least if her family knew where she was and could visit like I did. So that's what I set out to do was to find her family and return her to them, you know, physically or figuratively. I wanted them to know where she was. The fact that Todd had lost two of his siblings at birth, Gregory, Kenneth, and Sue Ann, was a part of his determination to find the tent girl's family. That's just something we have to accept, the fact that people are going to die. The difference with tent girl was, and, and with my siblings, 
there's no reason for it. You know, if an older person had passed away through due course of a normal aging life and sickness, but you know, to have siblings at that age, it wasn't normal. It wasn't something we liked, but it was, uh, there was an explanation. You know, my brother and sister had birth defects. So there was an explanation for it. So I didn't like it, but at least it made sense. It was so similar with, uh, the loss and the unexplained portion of it. So it was naturally very attractive for me uh, to try to figure out, well, what happened to her? I really couldn't get answers from mother and sister, but I could with her or at least find her family and find a way to find the rest of the story. They might have clues. So it did become a growing obsession. It did. That's what it was all about. Giving her back to her family, giving her back her name, Todd got obsessed with the story of the tent girl at a unique time in history when the world was just beginning to realize the power of the internet and computers. The tools back then seem archaic now. You created a lot of like kind of firsts for the internet slews that would come later. We're in a rural area here and a lot of the things you would improvise because, not because it wasn't a lack of money sometimes, it was a lack of access to a certain resource. So taking something and repurposing it wasn't unusual at all for us. You know, just just the way that we were heard, use what you have and make the best use of it. Well, I felt like uh, once I had the internet, the internet came along, I'm thinking instead of the concrete the asphalt highway, I'll take the information superhighway and, and search for her in that manner and it was cheaper, faster. So just started looking, uh, and it was a very young internet. You know, it was dial-up. I had to wait for, you know, you you literally dial the, the dial, and that, you know, sparks were flying, and then you were dialing up and hearing that sound. And to me, that's the most amazing thing now that I was able to dial in for a long enough time to do anything with it. So I thought, well, there'll be some reference to Tinkerl on here. There was nothing. There were so many points along this journey that Todd could have just given up. These roadblocks fueled his creativity, and he decided to make something brand new, a digitized missing persons case file. Ultimately, I decided to assemble all the information, photographs of the stone, descriptions, and make a a case file that was a digital case file for her. And I put it out there hoping that somebody would see it, respond to me, and say, that's my so-and-so. And nothing, nothing. You can imagine that Todd was just brimming with excitement that someone out there on the World Wide Web, as they called it back then, would see his digitized file and reach out. It felt like it was so close. You know, I have something to digitally share with a lot of people and uh, still fishing, still waiting. Day after day, year after year, no response. And every night he would scroll through online posts, searching message boards and chat rooms. So it was a matter of starting to look at message boards just to see mother, daughter, missing, whatever, nothing. Todd would even create a website for the tent girl. It seems basic now, but back then, this was a really big deal. Even news organizations were just coming online with websites, and they were just like one page, and there weren't any links to click. I'm looking online, and I'm finding where media are coming online. You know, that was new at the time. It's a big deal. So what? Uh, WLEX got a new website, okay? And it was static pages. So I reached out to a reporter there, John Wesley Brett, and I told him about the tent girl, gave me my page, and he's like, wow, you know, somebody put a body online. They do it every day now, but back in the day, nobody had done it. So he referred me to the local newspaper. He knew the reporter there, which is just a few miles to the north in Georgetown from Lexington, and they did a story. And the story was literally, what's not a story anymore, man related to man that found tent girl creates website for tent girl in hopes to identify her. That itself was the news, you know, 
those things, people create pages now for John and Jane Doe's, and it's not news now. But at the time, that was the news, the fact that somebody had done that and had created a page. And I was just doing it out of a sense of a need and purpose. I needed some way to share that data, and uh, it caught on. But it wasn't about the tent girl. The headline was something like, Hick with a computer. So you've been working the case from 1987 to fast forward to 1997, and you're mm -hmm. putting feelers out via the internet. You've got some media coverage going. Yes. And then what happens? So we get the story. So the news article went out in November of 1997. You know, that was great. You know, it was, and, and it wasn't the story that I was hoping. You know, I, th I was hoping it was going to be more of a tent girl story, but it was like you some redneck in Tennessee made a... Yeah, it was just like, well, that's not exactly what I was going for, but, you know, build on what you have. But it did give me a reference point. So I had the tent girl's face, um, you know, on a, I made a poster for her. I had a news article, so I kept looking, you know, for other people. I thought, build it and they'll come, but they didn't. We'll be back after a quick break. Today, internet sleuths, armchair detectives, and podcast hosts have really done a lot to help solve crimes. But back then, the work that Todd was doing to try to give back the tent girl's name was something that people felt weird about. Having conversations with people you work with, and it's like, you would hear some people say, well, that's weird, dude. It's like, well, no, I don't, I don't really, you know, the dead is not something to fear. And uh, a lot of people just avoided the topic of death. I was probably more comfortable with it because my brother and sister had already passed, and it was just normal for me uh, to have siblings that had passed over. So that factor I would got passed. You know, and, and I realized then that other people didn't, you know, because I was a kid now. I was uh, from a 17-year-old kid going into my early 20s, and uh, I didn't have any life experiences other than my childhood to base this on. So to me, to find other people that didn't really have that comfortable relationship with death, that was surprising to me. You know, it seemed, you know, they seemed weird to me because they were avoiding a part of life. You know, it was just like, that's just something we have to accept, the fact that people are going to die. After high school, Todd and Lori had a couple of kids, and he worked at a factory. And as the years rolled on, Todd's quest to find the tent girl's family started having an effect on his home life. So it did become a growing obsession. It did. And uh, I don't think my wife saw any into it. Long-distance phone calls then were expensive. You know, they're not free now. And I think, I think some of the challenges we had back then, even some of the young detectives don't recall the time period where there was no internet or there was no cheap telephone, you know, 10 cents, 15 cents a minute versus 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. You know, that's a big deal. It was a lot of money, especially when you're making minimum wage, which is... You know, I, when I first started work, it was 285 an hour. So and, 10 who were you, and who were you calling? You know, you would call a library and, and hope that maybe they had a newspaper archive that you could come and take a look at. So you try to call ahead. You know, I wanted to see if other areas published stories about the tent girl. I wanted to see if other areas published stories about a missing person that could have been the tent girl. But Todd did have one advantage, other than his determination. It was Wilbur, his father-in-law. Remember how I said earlier that he had never forgotten the details of finding the tent girl? That those details haunted him, that they never left him? Well, it was those details that would ultimately help Todd refine his searches and his understanding of the case and who the tent girl could be. My father-in-law saw her, so he tells me that he thought that she was an adult. She had been there. She still had flesh. He saw her skin. He saw that it was modeled. We think that she was last known to be alive. It was probably uh, December 
1967. So this was May 17th when he found her body. And uh, it was been an exceptionally cold winter that year. So I heard things like that from him. It was a really cold winter. or So I knew her body had been preserved for some period of time just from the cold weather. So there was a lot of little things that he knew from being there, not so much as an expert, but just somebody that was there could tell yeah. you. He saw her body and, uh, you know, the and how they come to the point that she was a child is just her small stature. She could have been 13 to 16. Then later they said 13 to 19. He, uh, he said that she had well-developed breasts and he thought that possibly she was an adult. She had painted fingernails and he wouldn't allow his girls to paint their fingernails, but he, she had painted well-manicured fingernails that you might not associate with a child back in that time period. So I went with that. You know, that's the thing that I went with. That don't come from an autopsy report. That comes from somebody's and he was a man that probably had total of uh, 15 children. He knew, you know, he could, he, you know, there were certain things that he knew. And I don't know if he realized how much of a clue that was. What he just told me was in contradiction to some of the early um, estimations. So I, that's what I kept in mind, that I thought she was an older person. And cloth baby diaper in the bag with her. Could she have had a child? And that's one of the things I wanted to look at in her earlier autopsy was, uh, was there any evidence of childbirth? And of course, there was nothing, you know, that it was too late. She was already buried. You know, there's just so many different things that I just picked up that I felt like uh, to some people's anecdotal data. And to me, it felt like, well, that, that might be the only clue there is. And if she had a child, where's a child? Is it alive today? Does it even know who it is? Does it even know its own name? Uh, was it stolen? Was it adopted? So I thought, you know, those are the people that I wanted to kind of reach out to. Somebody that might have some recollection that um, they themselves were displaced. So that's what I was looking for. Uh, and I think instead of uh, trying to solve a crime so much as it was, I was trying to uh, find somebody looking for her. And without it being widely distributed, you know, reference point, there was no way to get that out to people before the internet. Was anybody but you looking into the case? To my knowledge, I was the only person. I mean, she come up in news articles years over, and I understand Kentucky State Police would review the file from time to time when they had new people. But as far as a real, other than somebody reading the report, you know, just cutting their teeth on it as a new officer, I don't really see anything that was done. This was the beginning of cyber crime units. This was the beginning of uh, electronic uh, investigative practices. Even though Todd tried to keep a sense of normalcy in his family unit, there's no doubt his pursuit of the Tent Girls case was having a real impact on his family. A lot of times I'd let my family go to bed and then sneak back up after they settled to give them an air of normalcy that uh, I'm not just going to sit up all night long looking for a girl that's passed away. You go to bed and just simulate normal things with them and uh, sneak back up and continue looking. And that's what I did. You know, I wanted to try to make them feel comfortable and not have a sense that I was uh, spending a lot of time every day doing this. Lori knew all too well what Todd was up to with the tent girl. His quest had become a part of their daily lives. And imagine growing up with Wilbur who'd been irrevocably scarred and consumed with the case, it's absolutely understandable that Todd's investigation of the tent girl pushed Lori to her limits. Reminding her, uh, you brought this here. You brought this to me. So it's not like something that was my muse from earlier. You brought it here. And I think that was the one thing that kind of kept her from being at the breaking point, like me dreading the phone bill coming. Like, oh my God, they're going to, I've talked more on the phone than she realizes and we're going to get a bill that's $53. And maybe I made 239 this week. You know, yeah, she's going to, she's going to be pissed. And I don't blame her. So it was things like that. It was, wasn't the little things that you could overlook, you know, just 10 minutes too long doing this or, 
uh, reading something, it was like, you're spending real money that's kind of taken away from things. And we're not living a wealthy life here. So it's, it, you're spending money that, uh, that's taken away from other things that we need. That was the real thing that bothered her. It's hard to fathom, but after nearly 10 years of this pursuit, Todd finally, after so many years of fishing, he got a bite. It was another late night after his wife and kids were tucked into bed, and Todd was, of course, cruising a website, and he came across a post from a woman named Rosemary. You met her earlier in the show. Rosemary lived in Arkansas, and she wrote a message about a missing relative, her older sister, Bobby, who had gone missing in late 1967 from Lexington, Kentucky, about 15 miles from Georgetown, where the tent girl had been found by Wilbur. Here's Rosemary detailing what led her to make that post. In 1995, I convinced my husband that we needed the internet in our home because I heard you could you could find anything. Everything's connected like a cobweb. <laughs> and finally he gave in. And I had to really do some talking to get him to do that, you know. We had that big box monitor and all that. And uh, I went around and got into, like, uh, adoptee chat rooms. And then they insisted that I go onto, like, message boards. And I went to this Crane and Hibs. I'll never forget the name of it. And I wrote, uh, I have a sister that's been missing for X amount of years. Five foot two, brown hair, brown eyes, teeth build, was last seen in Lexington. Lexington, Kentucky, if anyone has seen or heard of a Jane Doe or something to this description, to please contact me. You can imagine the mix of complicated emotions that Todd must have felt after reading Rosemary's message. How many days and nights of his life had he devoted to trolling around chat rooms, bulletin boards, and websites searching for that needle in a haystack that would finally blow this case wide open? It was one of those nights that I, I let everybody go to bed and pretend like I'm asleep. And then I get up and sneak into another room. I create a little office in a bedroom opposite of the house so that you know, Lori couldn't hear me. You know, so she didn't necessarily know that I was up or how long I was in there. And I was looking at a Craigslist type of website. It was called Hank Hibbs and Crane, H-I-B-B-S and Crane, C-R-A-N-E. Searching with the keywords, Googling before there was a Google you know, I, I found looking for my sister last known to be in Lexington. That caught my eye. When I saw that, I thought, that's it. That's, that's what I'm looking for. Todd had searched for so long and so hard. Imagine him sitting there in his little office in the middle of the night. He dreamed and prayed that this day would come. But now that it was here, how did he contact this woman who was hoping to find her sister alive? He knew he wouldn't be bringing good news. I had never thought of, I've got to call somebody and tell them that their missing sister is a Jane Doe an urban legend in another state. That was weird, you know, so that's a weird thing you got to tell somebody. So luckily I had all that stuff I accumulated. I finally saw the purpose of that, and that was to have a point of reference to show somebody. There were a lot of events that led to Rosemary posting that message, trying to find her missing sister, Bobby. Because for Rosemary's family, their beloved Bobby going missing wasn't the first tragedy to befall their family. Just two weeks before Rosemary was even born, tragedy had struck. Well, now see, I was raised by my real mother's younger brother and his wife. They took me in because two weeks before I was born, I had a father that died and a six-year-old brother that had died in a flood. They both drowned So. I was raised by an aunt and uncle whom I call mom and dad. 
The horrible, tragic accident involving Rosemary's father and brother would have far-reaching consequences for the family. It meant that Rosemary's mother would have to make a choice that no mother should ever have to make. Your father passes away 15 days before you're born. Your mom has your mom has other children, Bobby being one of them. Yes. And so just because she was a now single mother basically with how many children did she have already when she was pregnant with you? There was Sammy, Nancy, Marie, Bobby, Jan, and I. Wow. So not seven, only I would be number 7. So not only is she losing her husband and your brother, but she has a new baby and she still has all of my other siblings to feed and clothe and get to school and she has jobs that she has to work, you know, I mean, it's a lot. Even though Rosemary was being raised away from her siblings, they always came to visit her when they could. And she has really fond memories of Bobby. She would come and spend the weekend, you know, we'd play games. We'd go out on the porch and, and take my old record player out there and we'd play little 45 records and dance on the porch, you know, one thing when life was simple. Even though Rosemary didn't see Bobby every day, they were still very close. She was always fun when she was around me. We'd go down to the ice cream parlor and we'd get ice creams and, and we'd walk home, you know, just talking and chatting and eating our ice creams and, and we'd sing songs and, you know, she was a good sister. All of my sisters were good sisters. They would always take the time if they were in town to come by and spend the night and we'd, you know, we'd always sleep together because we were sisters. I was a little bitty and we'd lay in there and tickle each other and, and you know, tell funny stories and we'd laugh and we tell stories to each other about family and stuff. It's like two sisters, what any two sisters would do if they hadn't seen each other in a long time. Bobby was just a teenager when she met Earl because her mom was in social work. And when a man named Earl came to town, it was just a coincidence that he would meet Bobby. Worked for social services. And when Earl rolled into town with Bonnie, the child from a previous marriage, he went with Bonnie to social services because he needed someone, a daycare, you know, to watch her, and, you know, to babysit her while he worked. Well, mom having three other daughters, you know, Bobby was picked to babysit Bonnie. So she, she knew Bonnie before she even married Earl because she babysat her. After Bobby married Earl, they moved around a lot. He worked for the carnival, and even though she wasn't physically close to her family now because of their lifestyle, she still talked on the phone with them regularly. She had always had their support, and that would never change. She had moved around, and I know she lived in Miami for a while, her and my sister, Nancy, but Bobby would always keep in touch with them and let them know because she was with the carnival. She had married a man, and he was with the carnival, and so wherever they would go with the carnival, she would always call and let my mom know where she was. Bobby would go on to have two kids with Earl. And then remember, he came into the marriage with his daughter, Bonnie, from a previous marriage. But the marriage wasn't great, and Bobby would often call her mom, asking her to come help. She said with the kids, but I'm sure it was more than that. But I do remember now talking to uh, my mother when she was still alive, and my sister Nancy, that... Um, she would call and say, oh, I just, you know, things are bad. Can you come up and help with the kids? And 
Nancy would drive, Nancy and my mom would drive and drive to wherever they were at and, and help take care of the kids. But Bobby's mom was getting concerned. It had been too long since she'd heard from her daughter. And so Bobby's mom and her sister Nancy got in the car and drove up to Kentucky from where they were living in Miami. They knew that the last time that they'd spoken to Bobby, she had said that she was living in Lexington. Well, when Bobby didn't contact my mother and Nancy, or Nancy, she told him that the last place that she was was in Lexington, Kentucky, and um, didn't hear from her. So they went, my mother and Nancy drove to Kentucky to see if they could find her. They knew the address where they lived at. So they went there, and uh, he had uh, told her that she just ran off with another man. Bobby had an eight-month-old little girl, Michelle, and a two-year-old boy named Sonny, and then her stepdaughter, Bonnie. It's believed that Bobby went missing around December 7, 1966. And when Bobby's mom and sister drove to Kentucky from Miami, she hadn't been missing for very long. And they didn't take Earl's word for it, that she had just run away with another man. It wasn't that long after. No, it was not long after. Because it's a two-day drive from Miami to Kentucky for them. Oh, my gosh. You know, this is so perfect for him in the sense of horribly perfect, I should say, because they're not from that area. So nobody's going to notice that she's not there. Yes. Yes. Which he took advantage of. Yes. Did your mom and sister believe him when he told them that? Oh, no, because her purse was there. The Murder Chronicles will return in a moment. When Bobby went missing, Bonnie, Bobby's stepdaughter, who was in first grade at the time and who called her mom, later she would recount what she believed was Bobby's last day. Because he had the car loaded. Now, this is Bonnie. When she got older, she remembers him arguing one night because they lived in a one-bedroom apartment up above, I believe, a restaurant. And she remembers her getting up and Bobby getting her ready for school and got her off to school. At the end of the end of the day, Earl shows up with the two babies, the two little ones, and no mom. She said, where's mom? Oh, he ran, she ran off with another man. And so he took them to a friend's house and dropped the kids off and remembers the friend's wife, the gentleman and the lady that Earl took them to. You know, she gave him a bath and made him supper and got him fed. And, and she said, she went to sleep before they had gotten back. So I'm sure he had a friend to, I'm, I'm going to say this, dispose of her uh, probably that evening or that late afternoon. You think he had help? He had to have. Now, we'll never know for sure, but Rosemary is convinced that Earl is the person responsible for murdering her sister and that he had help in disposing of her body. Bobby's mom and sister knew she would never leave her children, and they knew only too well what Earl was capable of. I remember my sister Jan went to visit Bobby and Earl, and they lived in a camper. And my sister Jan and Earl got into an argument, and he picked her up, my sister Jan, and threw her out the door of the camper over an argument. That's how abusive he was, and he wasn't even married to my sister Jan. So I can only imagine that if someone made waves against what he wanted to do, he was held to pay. 
Rosemary would go to the place where Wilbur had found the tent girl's body on May 17, 1968. She imagined Bobby being stuffed in that big canvas tent bag. Remember, both Earl and Bobby worked for the carnival. That, well, Bobby did the ducks, you know, where the ducks float in the water and the kids, you know, pick a duck out and it's got a number on it and whatever number that they pick, that's the prize that they won. So, I mean, she was well known within the, in the circuit. I didn't realize that she worked for the circus as well. Yes, yes. When Todd's father-in-law discovered your sister, do you know Correct. that area very well? Can you describe it? I've heard that it was like out in the backwoods, and I don't, I don't know if that's just... We had to stop by a guardrail on the end of a, do- a guardrail and park, and we had to walk maybe, it was quite a ways, it seemed like. We had to jump over the guardrail and go down this hill, and there was a very large rock that had a void underneath it, and that's where he had stuffed her up underneath this rock and left her there left her there so do when you... they did find her they knew that she wasn't dead when he put her there she may have been knocked out but the broke fingernails inside of the tarpaulin that she was in the scratch marks on the inside of the tarpaulin says otherwise what does that do to you to know that i breaks heard that... my heart oh, breaks my heart to know that somebody could do that not only to my sister but to anybody you know you just don't do that Yeah, I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, honey. We know now that Earl had never filed a missing persons report on his wife, and Earl was never interviewed by local police, even after Bobby's mom and sister tried to file a missing persons report with local law enforcement. They went to the uh, sheriff's department down there. They told them, well, there was no communication between states. They didn't have all the technology that they have now. So they were told to go back home to Miami and file a missing persons report in Miami. Well, back then, a missing persons report went in a file drawer, not online, not connected to any other sheriff's office or police department or anything like that. So I'm sure that... When they filed that, it was filed. It was in the records, but it was in a file drawer. That is so bizarre that they told you guys or told them to go back to Florida to do that when she was missing from Kentucky. Right. But now you got to figure this is 1968. I know, but even 1968 standards, that just seems like total blow off. Doesn't it? It seems like the complete blow off. Yes. Because who's going to look for her in Miami? I mean, she's not. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. With no help from law enforcement and Earl standing behind the fact that Bobby ran off, the years slowly began to tick by and they never heard from Earl again. I think that they suspected by Bonnie remembering the arguments and the abuse that he gave to Bobby. She remembers. She was five. I mean, that's a very impressionable age. Absolutely. And then all of a sudden, mom not being there, and then being drove to Ohio, and all three kids were given out to his family. He just gave them away and left. Gave them, one got legal guardianship, and and two got adopted out, but they were in three different families. You guys were never even consulted with this? No, no. All he told our family was that she ran off with another man. And your mom never heard from him again? No. But it wasn't like they ever forgot about Bobby. We always, you know, talked on the phone. Have you heard from Bobby? 
No. Have you, you know, called different family members? You know, has anybody heard from Bobby? No, nobody's heard from her. Wow. And and really, my mom and dad here in Arkansas, and every year I would ask dad, you know, when the state fair come around or when where we live at, the Slane County Fair would come around. Daddy, can we go look for Bobby? We'd always go to the fair. Well, you know, I'd ride some rides and have a little bit of fun, but trust me, me and daddy's eyes and mom's eyes were looking in each booth, asking uh, at just random, you know, just booths of, of whatever that, you know, they were doing. You know, do you know this lady? We'd always carry a picture. Do you know this girl? Her name's Bobby. Have you heard, you know, anything? Do you recognize her? And everybody would say no. But that didn't stop us from asking everybody, everyone. Fast forward to January 1998, when Rosemary got a response from Todd about her post trying to find Bobby. Well, it wasn't up there very long, and I got this email from Todd. Todd says, I have information about your sister. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's probably a spam scammer or something wanting me to buy a, a list of people, you know. There was a lot to overcome as Rosemary and Todd began to build their trust. Of course, they're looking at, uh, you know, the Internet's so new. There's, of course, there's pirates on there, you know, like they, but they couldn't really figure out what it was that I was looking for. So I, I wasn't wanting anything. I was trying to give her her sister back. So she had a lot to absorb. You know, she had put out a message. She was she had dropped her line in the water and she got a bite. So and I had to give her a little bit of time for that. She had family that she had to reach back out to, you know, explain like I might have found her, but she's not alive. And I think that's what they was hoping not to find. Things really began heating up when Todd told Rosemary to call the sheriff's office. It was one thing for him to have his digital case file, all of his news clippings, article that they had written about him, you know the one that said the country boy with the computer. But it was quite another when Todd directed Rosemary to the sheriff's office. He says, I need you to call Scott Sheriff Hammonds at Scott County, Kentucky. Well, I'd print this email out, you know, and I'd drive over to my mom and dad's. Dad's out there hosing off the driveway, and I pull up, and I said, Daddy, I got to talk to you, and this is what I've done. So I handed him the email, and I said, what do I do? You know, I was scared. I didn't know. And he said, well, I think you better call the Scott County Sheriff's Office. So I went back home, and I called him, and I talked to this lady, and he said, now, we've got a girl that we don't know who she is, and she's buried in a potter's grave. And he said, she won't do you have pictures. Yes, I have pictures. He said, will you send us a copy of those pictures? And I did. And he said, the pictures that we sent had the split in our teeth. We all have splits in our teeth. The, you're talking about the and front part? The front part of the top teeth. Mm-hmm. And with her having that split and looking at the autopsy picture, it, it was a comparison. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So anyway, my mom and dad gather all of us up and drive us to Kentucky, and, and we meet with them, and they take us to the graveyard. And if I could take a picture of me, my face in a triangle, and the picture that they had engraved in this tombstone, we would have been identical sisters. And I knew it was her when I seen her. And how many other family members were with you and at that gravesite and saw a tent girl? And, and what was you? I mean, when you hear the word tent girl and then you see it on a tombstone and being a family member, what's that like? You know, I was kind of pr- proud. And, and I don't mean to be facetious in my words, but it 
was more of a closure feeling. At least I know where she is. My mom, my dad, my husband, my son, and then my sister Nancy flew in from Florida. I had a sister Jan that flew in from Tennessee. I mean, it, it, was, it was heartwarming to know that they had done all they could do for this girl, not knowing who she was. You know, it was, there was a tombstone that they had engraved on the day that they found her. They had an outline of her with short hair. They had uh, five foot two, brown hair, brown eyes, found on Highway 25 in Sadieville. Uh, just a lot of information and a lot of thought went into care of her but them not even know who she was. I was proud of the people of, you know, of Kentucky. What did you think of Todd then? I mean, you're going to just be like... I hugged his damn neck. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I hugged that neck just as tight as I could. <laughs> because what you just said was exactly what he wanted, was for her people to find her. Yes, you know, every every family, now I'm going to go in a little depth here, okay? Yeah, please Every do. family that has someone, and there's probably at least one person in every five families, I'd say, that has someone missing. There, there's a void in your heart. There's mm-hmm. a, where is she? Is she okay? Is she, is she on the streets? Does she have a blanket? Is she being fed? Did someone take her in? Does she have amnesia? You know, is she sick? Is she well? Does she know who she is? You know, I mean, that eats at you. And I know that every family out there that has someone missing, someone knows where that person is, but they're just not ready to tell. A DNA test was the only way to know for sure, and that would mean exhuming the body. Unfortunately, because it was winter, they would have to wait for spring before they could exhume the body. So three months later, in March of 1998, DNA from the Tent Girl's bones were sent to the lab to be compared with Rosemary's DNA swab. You know, that had been a little bit of time. It was winter. The ground was frozen at times. So once they were able to dig her up, the DNA was submitted, and by then, all the news media was soaking in. We were getting these early stories of tentative ID, and Hillbilly has a computer, by the way. <laughs> you know, so it was, there was just a lot of things like that. If I look back at it now, it'd be offensive to see some of that. It's like uh, 48 hours was getting embedded, and it was, it, was, uh, it was a time period. So it took six weeks. It went to LabCorp. On April 23, 1998, the Scott County Sheriff's Office announced that the tent girl had been identified. She was Barbara Ann Hackman-Taylor, who went by Bobby. When the story broke, there were a lot of emotions. But now that Bobby had been identified, the question became, who murdered her and left her in a tent bag in the backwoods of Kentucky? Bobby's husband, George Earl Taylor, had been employed at a carnival. And now that Bobby had been identified, he was the prime suspect in her murder case. Ironically, George Earl Taylor died of cancer in October of 1987. But one of the most ironic things, he died the same month in the same year that Lori told me about that story. October of 1987 was the year that Earl Taylor died. They've never said for sure that he was the one that killed her, but circumstantial evidence leads them to believe that that's what happened. 
posthumously they law enforcement believe it was him now i have to think that probably there was somebody that had to know you know ironically we found out that he worked for a carnival he's a carnival worker i mean the family knew that but they didn't know about the tent bag and the tent girl so that's where that came into play uh, it made sense circumstantially work for a carnival he had access to that type of material so it all just fell together the pieces just fell together it makes sense why a tent bag where would somebody get a, a tent bag that's as big as a sleeping bag it was odd I think that was that was where it all made sense, and that's where it was, you know, being proven to us. That's like that's it. The family decided to reinter Bobby in the Georgetown Cemetery where she'd been buried under the name of Tent Girl, but they placed an additional stone under the original grave marker with her birth name, nickname Bobby, and the date of her birth, presumed date of death, and the inscription "Loving Mother, Grandmother, and Sister." And Todd says that giving Barbara Ann Hackman Taylor her name back was worth following his heart and doing what he believed was right for Tent Girl, her family, and beyond. Back in the day when this happened and they called you Hillbilly with a computer, I mean, that's pretty... I'm sure that's not how you saw yourself. Well, and they said it a little nicer with the way they said it. Uh, you know, when they entered, when they introduced uh, the story on 48 Hours, it came out in May. They said, and the answer come from, of all places, Tennessee, and of all people, a farm boy. I'm not even a farm boy. You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm a, I live in uh, between suburbs and the rural area, so it's not, no way. I'd never milked a chicken or anything like that. So uh, it's just, I'm not, I'm not a farm boy, and it's okay to be a farm boy. I just wasn't a farm boy. So uh, that was the crazy thing. It was like, I think they're more amazed that I had enough intelligence to do it than the actual fact that I did it. You know, that, yeah. you know, that was something you had to think about. It's like, oh my God, they're more amazed that I had the intelligence to do this and the uh, access to a computer. So, you know, and that is a little insult and they wouldn't do that today. It's totally different today, but you know, we were just learning these things at the time. So it was new to everybody. So I think they was impressed. You know, I felt like Forrest Gump, you know, it's like, wow, <laughs> they, they don't think a lot of me. They think I just stumbled upon this, but no, there was a lot of work in it. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that it was uh, in any way a groundbreaking use of the internet. I didn't know that. I just knew uh, I'm doing what I think is the right thing to do. You became like a, you know, cause celeb for a short period of time or maybe for a long period of time. Like what, what was that like for you? And did it feel great to have that vindication that this, this decade of your life was not for naught? Well, I think that was, I call those my college years now. That's, that's what they become. They become uh, my college, and I don't recommend that route to college. That's a, it's a big gamble, but I mean, I was able to land jobs that were, you know, with, with NamUs, as director of case management communication, that were, uh, you know, higher level jobs, and my work experience gave me the opportunity to do that. But I mean, it took a toll at the time. I was having to process and evolve very quickly back from somebody I'd never flown before to somebody that was being featured on a lot of different television shows. And you were talking to reporters that were sophisticated, intelligent people asking you questions and you had to have a, an intelligent answer. You know, I couldn't just give them a, gee, I don't know, duh. You know, I'm a dumb old hillbilly. You know, I wanted to make sure I didn't just uh, be bashful and just give them one word answers. I wanted to be able to tell them how I really felt. So you, it was, it was like you were plunged into the spotlight. You either let it burn you up or you acclimate to it. So that's what I did. I acclimated to it. I, I need to figure out how to use this platform that I have. Todd Matthews would go on to co-found the Doe Network with the goal of connecting volunteers in every state, a massive network of sleuths who want to help solve the mystery of the missing dead and return their names back to them and their families. And as for Rosemary, 
she has a message for anyone looking for their missing loved one. Don't give up. There is one thing, you know, for the families that are out there looking. Leave no page unturned. That's just like in Bonnie's situation. Remember, Bonnie was Bobby's stepdaughter. She had no idea who her mother was because Earl up and left with her. She didn't know who she was or where she was from. She found her birth certificate. She really didn't know who her mother was. She, she re has vague memory of her mother. She had her birth certificate and she got online also too and was talking to people down in Florida, you know, about the area and stuff. And so she met this lady that was very kind enough, you know, to visit with her and, and get a little in-depth in her story. And Bonnie turned the birth certificate over and it had an address on it of where she was born. Well, she had the girl to drive over to this address thinking it was a hospital. And she got back with Bonnie and she said, Bonnie, there's a house there. There's not a hospital. That's where her mother lived. Was her mother still alive? Her mother was still alive. Oh my gosh, what happened? So my my advice to everyone out there is check everything. Don't don't miss a line on something that you can investigate or check out. She found her mother and it was right there on the back of the birth certificate. Don't and give up. And had her mother been searching for her for years? Yes, and knew, knew nothing of which way to go. Nothing. Knew nothing. Earl had just she taken just her? Taken, just taken her, just took her and moved on. What did you feel when you found out that he died of cancer? I'm sorry for saying this, but thank God he got his, he got what goes around comes around. So you're glad that it happened that way instead of some kind of lengthy trial or? Yes, it was the best for all of us because that way it was done. It's done. You know, I'm sure God took care of him. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And nor does his children. Well, thank and you. I hate to be so rude about that, but that's <laughs> just the way I feel. <laughs> that's not being rude. I could think of a, some other things to say, <laughs> but I won't. And I want to thank you for listening to The Murder Chronicles. And as always, if you have any cases that you'd like me to cover on the show, please reach out to me at themurderchronicles at cavalrymedia.com. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.